I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. Today I'm talking to Rachel Nolan, who teaches Latin American history at the Pardee School of Global Studies at Boston University and has a piece in the current issue of the LRB on the 1954 coup in Guatemala and its aftermath. The piece is a review of Mario Vargas Llosa's most recent novel, Harsh Times. Hello, Rachel, and thank you very much for joining me. Hi, thanks so much for having me. We'll get on to Vargas Llosa in a bit, but let's begin with what happened in 1954 with, with the events of the coup. And maybe you could just talk us through what happened. Sure. So the 1954 coup in Guatemala is an event that I'm always surprised people haven't heard of because it's even somewhat funny if you aren't a Guatemalan whose government was overthrown, of course. So what happened in 1954 is that Guatemala was a tiny Central American country that most people in the United States had never heard of. However, it had overthrown decades of sort of semi-feudal dictatorship in 1945 with the opening of what was called the Democratic Spring or the Guatemalan Spring. So Guatemalans had uh, had open elections and elected presidents uh, freely and fairly for the first time. However, this grew to concern the United States because one of the democratically elected presidents, Jacobo Arbenz, began uh, a systematic land reform. And this wouldn't have been an issue, right? A small Central American country undergoing land reform. Why did the United States care? They cared because the largest, one of the largest corporations in the United States at that time was United Fruit, which made an absolute boatload of money by shipping bananas in to the United States and around the world from various Central American countries. They were known as El Pulpo, the octopus, because they had their tentacles in every aspect of Guatemalan economy. So they controlled the railroads, they controlled the electrical um, system, et cetera, et cetera. And they had generally enjoyed enormous political influence in Guatemala. So when the land reform came around in 1952, the United Fruit said, no, 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 this will ruin our business, absolutely. And so they hired a a publicist who happened to be Sigmund Freud's nephew um, to kind of promote the idea in the United States that communism was infiltrating Central America and that it would become some sort of Soviet beachhead that the Soviets could use to interrupt U.S. control of the Panama Canal and then eventually, you know, reach up into the United States itself. And this was a time of anti-communist paranoia. So the nephew of Freud didn't have to do an enormous amount to convince people in Washington that Guatemala represented a threat. And the CIA at this stage was very new. It had just been created out of its um, predecessor organization and they had... um, collaborated with MI6 in the overthrow of the Iranian government just the year before. So the CIA, young, fresh, enthusiastic, thought, well, you know, we found this new, very cheap, very handy way to combat international communism, and we'll just go in and overthrow the government of Guatemala. Why not? And in fact, they found a kind of would-be dictator, 
sloshing around in Honduras. He'd previously attempted coups and not succeeded, in part because everyone in Guatemala hated him. So there's no way he ever would have successfully brought down the government in Guatemala were it not for the logistical and financial support of the CIA. The CIA, it's kind of incredible. You have these documents, internal documents from the CIA, which have since been declassified, that describe how they were doing psychological profiles of various candidates for Tin Pot Dictator. And they settled on this one individual, um, Castillo Armas, who I've just mentioned, who was um, hanging around Honduras hoping for his chance and, you know, pumped him up with money, with mercenaries, with importantly bombers. And in 1954, Castillo Armas entered Guatemalan territory. He would never have had a chance militarily against the Guatemalan government, but the CIA also engaged in a kind of radio scare campaign that was inspired by Orson Welles' fear broadcast. Um, historians are divided about how successful that radio uh, campaign actually was. But what we do know is that Arbenz was spooked into resigning. And in fact, he did resign, sought asylum in the Mexican embassy, and Castillo Armas successfully took over the government of Guatemala. So that's the kind of not-so-short version of what happened in 1954. And that question of it being, I mean, there are many pretexts, but the idea that it was sort of a beachhead against against communism or to prevent communism, establishing a beachhead on the America, in the Americas, I mean, it's partly true, but in a sense what the land reforms were, I mean, the plan was to, to give land to landless peasants. And in a sense, that's a, I mean, that could be seen as a capitalist move in a way. You're creating more property owners. And obviously they were taking land from United Fruit. And as I think you mentioned in your piece that the, the value of the land that they were prepared to pay for it wasn't the actual value of the land, is this right? But just the amount they declared for tax, which is obviously much lower. So they were sort of caught out by their own fiddle there. So how, so the CIA told this story about it being anti, an anti-communist I mean, Arbenz wasn't communist, was he? No, Arbenz was never communist. And one of the fascinating and horrifying aspects of this coup is that the United States really shot themselves in the foot. What they were looking for long term was a stable non-communist Guatemala. And in fact, allowing land reform to continue probably would have been a safer path to that desired future than meddling in the Guatemalan uh, political process in the way that they did. And just as you say, limited land reform probably would have been a more effective anti-communist measure than the measure that was taken by the CIA. What's important to understand is that there was a lot of anti-communist hysteria globally at this time. The Communist Party in Guatemala was minuscule. There were 3,000 to 4,000 members in a country of several million. One of the reasons for panic was that one of the members of the Communist Party was an advisor to Arbenz. So it's not as if there was no communist influence whatsoever in Guatemala at this time. However, as that communist friend of Arbenz famously said, they would have overthrown us even if there had been no bananas. That's a direct quote from this, this communist friend in the sense that, yes, it was the business interests of United Fruit that, that helped cause the coup in 1954 because that certainly captured the interest of a lot of 
important players in Washington at that time, who, by the way, were members of the United Fruit Board or who were seeking, um, who were shareholders or who were kind of seeking connections with United Fruit. It's kind of like the connections between Silicon Valley and Washington now, right? There's a kind of rent seeking that we would call corruption in a Latin American country, but is just sort of institutionalized in the United States. So we consider it legal. However, the kind of anti-communist hysteria was such that um, even 3,000 members was 3,000 too many members of the Communist Party for the United States at that time. The interesting thing is that even the CIA, with their limited intelligence, was cognizant of the fact that limited land reform could be an anti-communist move. They pursued that in other parts. The U.S. pursued this in other parts of the world, including um, East Asia at the same time. And in fact, at first, when the CIA was doing those psychological profiles, thinking who would be the best dictator of Guatemala, they were hoping for someone who had, you know, would continue land reform or who was in favor of land reform. And for the exact reason that this would have been effective against the communists, right? But the CIA eventually concluded that that was basically too muddled. You couldn't overthrow someone who was in favor of land reform and then sort of prop up a, a new dictator who was also in favor of land reform. Um, also strategically, it was never going to work because the natural allies for the CIA in this coup in 1954 were local elites in Guatemala who were rabidly anti-communist. So I don't want to say that the kind of right-wing paranoia was all coming from Washington. There was plenty of it on the ground in Guatemala. And so the sort of far-right elements in the military, the Catholic elite, there was a rabidly anti-communist uh, archbishop at this time. Um, and, and so it was going to be very difficult to find a sort of moderate puppet dictator. So they went for a ferocious uh, kind of right-wing puppet dictator. And he didn't last very long, did he? That Armas was in himself, he was assassinated what, in 1957? That's right. Castillo Armas lasted barely three years. The other thing that's important to know about him is that he was, as the CIA themselves admitted, a political non-entity. I mean, he was a terrible choice. He was uncharismatic, skinny, a terrible sort of Hitler-esque mustache. I mean, he was unpopular, unprepossessing, not very smart. I, I hate to pile on to Castillo Armas, to whom history has not done particular honor. Even, even the right wing in Guatemala has a hard time sort of defending him. They, they found other heroes uh, in earlier parts of Guatemalan history. The, I mean, we talked a bit about the, the CIA making up, they were making up a lot of stories here. They were making up stories about, as you say, with the, the, radio, the radio show that was imitating Orson Welles' War of the Worlds and dropping the leaflets, and they they were able to convince Arbenz to to quit through through telling these stories. And then they later, and they were telling an anti-communist story at home, and and they but then they also told themselves a story that this was an incredibly successful covert operation that nobody ever nobody realised it was the CIA doing it, when in fact everybody knew it was the CIA doing it, and they only convinced themselves of this that they'd done it in secret. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And one of the fascinating things about reading the historical accounts of the 1954 coup is the extent to which the CIA believed their own lies after the coup. The, the 54 coup went down in CIA lore and training for decades as a success, as far as we know from the CIA's own internal documents, right? And so they convinced themselves we did it. You know, the director of the CIA famously said when he heard that Arbenz had resigned, bully, bully, we did it. 
meaning it was an utter success. Um, it depends how you measure success, however, because in the in the longer time scale, what happened in Guatemala after 1954, a group of uh, military officials felt so humiliated by what everyone knew to be a CIA intervention in the country and all over Latin America that they took to the hills and they formed the first guerrilla groups that, that helped begin the uh, complicated civil war starting in 1960 that lasted until 1996. So Guatemala saw the longest and the bloodiest conflict in 20th century uh, Western Hemisphere. The civil war that lasted from 1960 to 1996 saw 200,000 people killed, the vast majority of whom were Mayan uh, indigenous people. And I can get into that, although that's a sort of later history. Many of the disenfranchised peasants who would have benefited from the land reform were themselves indigenous. So that was the group that was later targeted in the genocide that unfolded in the 1980s as part of this greater civil war. So what's the connection between 1954 and the civil war? Even the Truth Commission that was backed by the United Nations after the civil war to kind of say, hold on here, what happened? How did this conflict begin? They trace the beginning of Guatemala's political instability and the sort of tinder that lit to ignite the civil war in 1954. They, they trace it back to when the United States overthrew the Guatemalan government. So there's a direct link between the events of 1954 and the instability that led not just to Castillo Armas' assassination, because I hate to say it, but who cares, um, but to the kind of cycle of assassinations, new dictators, and the guerrilla forces that were founded by some of these disillusioned army officials, but many um, peasants or people who had no access to land or resources or recourse of any kind started joining those guerrilla movements, fueling the civil war throughout recent Guatemalan history. And frankly, the country is, is still devastated by that period. And beyond Guatemala as well, I mean, because you can see this, if this was the, the first US-backed coup in Latin America, and the CIA was convinced it was such a success, and then you know, there are countless stories overthrowing Allende in Chile, and the, the whole history of the US intervention overthrowing political left of center political moderates and replacing them with fascist dictators, it, Guatemala was the model for that. Absolutely. And so I, I don't want to overstate the extent to which this was totally new. Of course, the United States had been sending Marines, invading, influencing all over Latin America since before the independence period. However, what started in 1954 that was so new was the CIA, the idea that this was going to be covert. Covert in heavy air quotations, because of course, published even before the coup in Guatemala in 1954, it was all in Guatemalan newspapers that the, you know, the United States is involved, this is gonna happen, the invasion is coming, et cetera. So it was covert only in the United States, right? In Latin America, everyone knew it was the CIA. But it did set, 1954 in Guatemala, it did set a model for uh, covert interventions all over Latin America. And the fascinating thing is it's not just the success or tragic thing, is it's not just the successful interventions that you mentioned, 1973 Allende being the most famous, it's the unsuccessful ones, Bay of Pigs, you know, the CIA was coming out of 1954 in Guatemala, which is, I, I maintain, I know that my personal hobby horse is Guatemala, but I maintain it's much more important than people give it credit for. Because coming out of uh, Guatemala in 1954, the CIA thought, we have this cheapo, super successful way to overthrow a government that we don't like. Let's do it to Castro. And they hired back some of the same mercenaries from Guatemala to participate in the Bay of Pigs fiasco. What happened in Cuba is that the cards didn't fall their way in quite the same fashion as we know it failed spectacularly. But the idea was one and the same. And the other Cuba connection, right, is that Che Guevara was in 
was in Guatemala at the time of the coup. Sure. So Che Guevara was a young man at the time of the coup in Guatemala. He was hanging around Guatemala City with a kind of band of lefty exiles from all over Latin America. He met his first wife in Guatemala City. Um, she was a Peruvian economist, very interesting in her own right. And Che was in Guatemala to study the land reform. He thought that it was one of the most promising redistributive programs in Latin America at that time, and he was right, and he wanted to see how it was going to unfold. What he witnessed instead was this unbelievable backlash, and like everyone else in um, Guatemala, Che was very clear that the United States was behind the intervention. Um, he was very disappointed that Arbenz, the uh, democratically elected president overthrown by the United States, didn't call on popular militias. Che was ready to grab his gun and, you know, fight off the imperialists, but no popular militias materialized. So he was forced to seek asylum in the Mexican embassy. And then he later was granted safe passage to Mexico, where he met Fidel. And when they began plotting the Cuban revolution, it was Che, according to many accounts, many historical accounts, that helped convince Castro, you know, I saw the intervention in Guatemala firsthand. We need to be prepared for a U.S. military uh, intervention. We need to be prepared for covert action. By many accounts, including by his first wife, who met him in Guatemala City at the time, Che was radicalized by what he saw in Guatemala. And there's a question in, there's a kind of historical question about whether the course of the Cuban revolution would have been different had Guatemala not unfolded the way it did in 1954, had the U.S. been less heavy handed or decided not to get involved at all in 1954 in Guatemala. I mean, the ramifications of that go everywhere. They go to Angola, to, I mean, across the world. The, the idea that if the Cuban revolution had, had played out differently, or if the history of the Cold War, the whole of the, the history of the second half of the 20th century would have been quite different. And in fact, Fidel didn't announce himself as a Marxist-Leninist until two years into the revolution. It's not as if he took power and said right away, I'm a Marxist-Leninist, we're affiliated or we're aligned with the Soviet Union. He He was... Even with the advice of Che in his ear, he was looking for some kind of more independent path. And then Bay of Pigs and, and other you know, U.S. threats arguably forced him into a more uh, radical Soviet-aligned position. Again, this is a matter of intense debate among uh, historians, Cuban historians, foreign historians who write about Cuba. But it's a fact that Fidel didn't announce himself as a Marxist-Leninist until two years in. So that, that creates some really interesting historical counterfactuals, as you just mentioned. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. You mentioned in your piece Stephen Kinzer and Stephen Schlesinger's classic history of the coup, Bitter Fruit, and the CIA's classified account of its operations in Guatemala. So what does Mario Vargas Llosa's novel, his fictionalised account, bring to the story that isn't already there in the history books? That's a really good question. Vargas Llosa, since the 80s, has been writing historical novels. And he has, to give credit where credit is due, a real talent for choosing 
the juiciest moments in Latin American history to write about. So he wrote a fabulous novel about um, called The War at the End of the Worlds uh, about uh, an, a kind of religious fanatic uprising in Brazil in the late 19th century. He wrote, of course, the famous novel The Feast of the Goat about Rafael Trujillo, the dictator of the Dominican Republic, and I can mention many more. So of course, as someone who has lived on and off in Guatemala for a long time, who writes uh, about the history of Guatemala, I was delighted when he chose the 1954 coup. There's a feeling of, oh my God, he's noticing this tiny country that is, I think is so important and that of course uh, Guatemalans rightly think is the key to understanding the whole region. Um, but, the, but the question remains, what does he add by fictionalizing it? And in fact, if you read Harsh Times alongside Bitter Fruit by uh, Stephen Kinzer and Stephen Schlesinger, alongside The Secret History, which was written by Nick Cullither, which is the internal uh, CIA account of the coup in 1954, you think, oh my God, some of these details seem awfully familiar. And in fact, the Bitter Fruit is so well written that he didn't have to fictionalize very much. So Vargas Llosa, in his historical novels at his best, creates a kind of fascinating interiority for historical characters that you cannot have in nonfiction. So The Feast of the Goat, for example, you, you have a kind of access to both Trujillo and his enemies' internal states that he couldn't have lifted from any nonfiction account. Harsh Times is not as good a historical novel as The Feast of the Goat, unfortunately. Um, so he really misses the opportunity, in my opinion, to further fictionalize what sort of remains nonfiction on the page often. So for example, just think about the choice of the characters that he um, that he inhabits. Castillo Armas was a mediocrity. He's, it's not interesting to be in his mind, unfortunately. And the much more interesting person in the history uh, that, that Vargas Llosa could have entered into more fully is Jacobo Armas himself, the, the democratically elected president of Guatemala who was overthrown by the CIA. What, what was inside of his decision to step down? Did he have some kind of mental breakdown? Vargas Llosa includes the fact that he was drinking alcohol at the time, was trying not to drink alcohol. His father had committed, had died by suicide when he was a young man. So there's a lot of sort of interesting things to fictionalize there. And Vargas Llosa sort of misses the opportunity. Arbenz appears early on in the novel and then drinks a glass of whiskey and sort of drifts off and you never hear from him again. And that would have been an interesting character. So I, there are some missed opportunities there, I think. The most interesting character is the lover of Castillo Armas, by far. And she's a great character. Is she, but she's based on a real person, but there's a lot of invention. I mean, he, he calls her Miss Guatemala, right? Which she wasn't, presumably that title maybe never exist, didn't exist at the time, I don't know. That's exactly right. The lover of Castillo Armas is based on a real person. So she is a historically existent person. In fact, she still is alive. She lives in South Florida. She tweets. Um, she has a blog. She is an ardent Donald Trump supporter. And there is a afterward to the book in which Mario Vargas Llosa visits her and they have a conversation. And it's clearly, it, it, I'm sure it's thinly fictionalized. He changes the location of her house, for example. But she says something to him at the end of their conversation, which I suspect might be drawn from real life, which is she says, don't bother sending me a copy of your book. I won't be reading it, but my lawyers will. And so I love that. And I don't I don't know if she actually said that, um, but it sounds true to who she was as a person. And thinking about, about the comparison with The Feast of the Goats and the missed opportunity with Arbenz, because there is that, the character in The Feast of the Goat, the general who was, suppo who, who was part of the 
the coup that overthrew Trujillo, who is meant to then step in and say, I'm in charge of the country now, and who's paralysed, and he knows what he's meant to do, and yet he doesn't do it. I mean, he's, he's one of the most amazing, memorable characters in that novel, so it seems not to have... Ardbenz would, Ardbenz would be the equivalent character, I guess, in this story. He would be the equivalent character in the sense of someone who's experiencing psychological, you know, uncertainty, doubt, anything that might interest a novelist, rather than a, a military invasion, which is, of course, of interest to historians, but has less interesting internal stakes. The other comparison that I'll make to The Feast of the Goat is to say there are many characters in that book who are not important historical actors. For me, the most interesting character in The Feast of the Goat is the young, well, young at the time of the Trujillo dictatorship, daughter of one of Trujillo's ministers. So this is not someone who appears in most historical accounts. And she's given this very convincing, very interesting interior life. So I was thinking... um, what would the opportunity have been in harsh times? Basically, what was the opportunity that I feel that Vargas Llosa missed? And I think he missed the opportunity to think about someone who benefited from the land reform. I mean, one of the things that as a historian you don't have access to, and for a novelist or for a reader of novels would be very interesting, is someone who was a peasant, someone who was had received land. And that, can you imagine working on someone's plantation, the kind of patron, the, the big boss's plantation for decades, your family being effectively indentured or even enslaved to that family, suddenly receiving a tiny parcel of land in 1952. And then in 1954, as soon as the land reform is um, reversed, having that land snatched back from your family. I mean, what kind of experience was that? So like a young kid in that family or anyone like that, of course, I would love to read that fictional account. But, and this this is where Vargas Llosa's politics perhaps uh, come into it. We haven't mentioned them very much yet. Vargas Llosa is very interested in power. He's not so interested in the peasant. He's not so interested in the, the view from below, as historians would perhaps call it. So the uh, Orania Cabral, this character in The Feast of the Goat, is she is not herself powerful, but she is the daughter of a powerful minister under Trujillo. And so Mario Vargas Llosa's politics in real life are quite conservative, are quite right-wing. He's criticized in Peru for not understanding or taking into account the indigenous or the peasant point of view. And so I wonder, despite the fact that his novels have a kind of lefty sensibility that is often at odds with his right-wing political writing, you know, his nonfiction writing his columns for El País, I wonder if you can't smell a little bit of his political sensibilities in his choice of characters for these novels. Now, that's really interesting because it's the thing that's so often said is if the politician, you know, he, when he ran for he ran for president of Peru in 1990 on a neoliberal platform, privatization, austerity, the politician, he should read these novels by this guy Mario Vargas Llosa to give him a different point of view. And that's what's usually said. So, that, yeah, but to say that actually this the novels, there is more continuity between the fiction and, the, and his avowed politics than you might think is, yeah. That's that's quite persuasive. I think so. So on on the one hand, that's my reading. And of course, when Vargas Llosa was a candidate, one of his biggest supporters was Margaret Thatcher. On the other hand, Harsh Times was received this sort of divided reception in Guatemala because the right wing was expecting a sympathetic account. And in their view, a sympathetic account is Guatemala was about to go communist. 
Castillo Armas saved us from becoming another Cuba. So Vargas Llosa's much more historically based account, which freely and openly says Arbenz was never a communist, land reform was capitalist. It was intended to bring Guatemala out of its sort of feudal land relations into a more modern capitalist society. Um, was viewed as a betrayal by the right wing in Guatemala. So there's a sort of interesting, he, you know, he's neither fish nor fowl in that sense. Yeah, and, and he's, and as a young man, he was, he was very much to the left, wasn't he? I mean, he was, was he a Marxist-Leninist? Maybe not Marxist-Leninist, but he was Marxist? You can't be a university student in Latin America at that time and not be reading Marx, at least. He says that he was very attracted to Marxist-Leninist philosophy and that only later did he turn right wing. He, he says, it, again, to give him the fair accounting, he um, always cites the repression of writers under the Castro regime as a kind of turning point for him and the imprisonment of uh, homosexuals in that country, etc. So there are some reasons that he gives for taking a kind of rightward turn. And his former best friend, with whom he had a dramatic break, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the other extremely famous writer of the boom, um, the Colombian writer, went in exactly the opposite direction. So after the two faced off in, in famously, Vargas Llosa punched Garcia Marquez in the face in Mexico City. No one ever knew what that was about. Maybe it was about a woman, maybe it wasn't. But they diverged politically uh, even before that. And Marquez became very close with Castro and Vargas Llosa veered increasingly to the right. So this is a kind of famous split in the Latin American novelist intelligentsia. But I mean, as a right wing, he's, I mean, he's a liberal in, in economics and he's a libertarian and a social, a social liberal. So that, I mean, it definitely is a move to the right. I suppose, I mean, these labels, they mean different things in the US and the UK and Latin America, but he's, I mean, he was not, he would never have aligned himself with um, with Pinochet, for example. No, no, of course, no, one one needs to be fair to Vargas Llosa. However, um, in recent years, he's been writing some sort of disturbing things in El País. He wrote that allegations of political fraud in Peru with, and, and in fact, the ombudsman of El País had to retract it saying that there was no evidence that there had been political fraud. He has been writing things. I think he was nervous because of this uh, candidate who just won in Peru, Pedro Castillo, who is Marxist aligned. And Vargas Llosa seemed to go crazy and say, you know, Peru will soon be another communist country. The new version, uh, the kind of new version of the old Cold War, instead of saying, oh, we'll turn into another Cuba, as if this were the worst thing possible. Now, right-wing elites in Latin America say, oh, we'll turn into another Venezuela. And so that's what he was saying. And that worldview which he has, which is shared by a lot of people who describe themselves as liberals in, in the US and, and in Europe. I mean, I guess there's a sense in which he would see himself as a realist and the idea that believing in moderation and the middle way, the third way and this kind of thing. Whereas, and he, but he's at the same time, he's very interested in people he perceives as utopian fantasists, I guess. And we see that in the war at the end of the world, that this millenarian cult, this real millenarian cult in Brazil at the end of the 19th century. And even in, even in something like his novel, Aunt Julia and the Scriptwriter, somehow the, the way that alternates those two stories between the narrator who's describing his sort of us, but well, in a sense, real world uh, affair with his uncle's wife. And that's intercut with these increasingly elaborate radio soap opera stories that his his friend, the scriptwriter, is writing. And, 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 and the friend eventually ends up in a psychiatric hospital, if I remember right. So he seems to be very interested in this kind of 
mad as he sees it utopian thinking but at the same time isn't it seems is there something kind of utopian and slightly mad about his ideas the idea that we can the way to confront this fascist dictatorship is by I don't know, returning to the ballot box with moderate reforms and it can be done. And, it, and actually, that's, that's utopian thinking as well, isn't it? That's a really, I had never thought about it that way. That's a really interesting way of, of putting it. He does seem fascinated with utopias and people who are mad enough or interesting enough to dream other worlds. And so you think, well, why when he ran for president or when he's fulminating about politics now, does he seem so tethered to quote unquote reality, austerity measures, things that have poisoned the lives of so many people in Latin America for so long? And then I like so I like your turn that it ha- that it might be a sort of utopian thinking instead to think, well, we'll just try the old thing and hopefully it will work this time instead of, you know, trying to imagine a more equitable or uh egalitarian world that that's maybe going too far and that's for my novels and and will will remain with this very depressing reality for my politics thank you very much honestly he's a split man that's one of the things that's so interesting about Vargas Llosa even his not very good novels are interesting because of that dual consciousness of the world in a sense his historical novels and his non-historical novels use the same technique of sort of intersplicing different moments in time, different kinds of conversations. And one of the marks of a great writer is that you can follow it. I mean, the, you know, harsh times, you are moving back and forth between the lead up to the coup, the aftermath of the coup, the aftermath of Castillo Armas's assassination. For someone who is not a, you know, a paid pedant in Guatemalan history like myself, I did think, would this be easy to follow? And then I thought, oh yeah, of course it would be because I am I am less well-versed in other, in the kind of historical context of other novels that he's written, but I was able to follow them perfectly. The Feast of the Goat is a great example. He jumps all over the place in terms of time. That's set in the 90s, it's set in the 60s, it's, you know, it's all over the place. Um, but you can follow it and there's a certain kind of uh, through line and even telenovelistic tension, right? Telenovela being the soap operas of Latin America. There's a very, there's a kind of soap opera-ish quality of a lot of what he writes. There's the unrequited love. There's the sort of mystery that will be resolved in a later chapter. And that's part of what keeps you reading across these quite fragmented little bits and pieces. Um, And then of course, I think that The War at the End of the World is one of his great masterpieces. And so you know what's going to happen because it's a well-known historical case. But you, the tension of waiting for it to happen is almost unbearable. And I will say, in that novel as well, it really pays to read the nonfiction account because there's a character in that novel, the journalist, who is a famous Brazilian journalist who wrote uh, Rebellion in the Backlands, which is the famous historical account of what happened in Canudos, the, this event that he published in 1904 that's still in print. And it really pays to go and read Dacuña, which is this original account. That's the original journalist, and see how much Vargas Llosa lifted, but also just enjoy the account, which is, you know, totally expressing all of the prejudices and the worldview of the of a 1904 journalist who was himself not from the backlands. However, is a great read. There's a reason that it's still in print. There's a reason that it's a classic. Do you want to quickly say what the what the situation was that the, that story tells for people who don't know it? Oh, sure. So in in the 1890s, uh, Brazil had set itself up as a sort of fragile republic. 
And um, there was a religious fanatical leader who was going around gathering followers in the backlands of northeastern Brazil, which is the historically black um, and impoverished part of Brazil. And he was a monarchist. And he was called, he's called the counselor in the novel. And, and so it's easier to refer to him as that. And he was a monarchist, hoping that the Portuguese monarchy would be restored. But most importantly, he created this ferociously loyal band of followers who, when the Brazilian army decided that this kind of separatist monarchist group represented a threat, the army had to go in not once to raise this group to the ground, they resisted so ferociously, not twice, but three, four times. I think it took four efforts to destroy this community. And eventually the counselor was killed. Many of his followers were killed. It's rumored that some of the women who survived were taken to brothels in um, Salvador de Bahia. But this is the most important civil war, really, in Brazilian history. And it's an event that's well known in uh, Latin America, not just because of the bloodiness of the conflict, but because of the sort of utopian religious manias of the leader and the fact that he was so convincing to a large number of people. So when I say that Vargas Llosa has great taste for choosing historical events to write about, I made it. I mean, this is one of the most fascinating events in Latin American history. I would put the 1954 coup in Guatemala up there as a similarly fascinating event. I don't think he gives as good an account of it uh, novelistically, but his choice of topic is impeccable. I mean, it's interesting the way he ranges apparently so comfortably across the, the continent. I mean, there was the thing that, I mean, I presume it's true, this story, that when Ronald Reagan went to in 1982, he met the president of, of Guatemala, Efrain Rio, um, Rios Montt, in Honduras. And afterwards, he apparently said, well, I learned a lot. You'd be surprised. They're all individual countries. As, this idea that, which is also, that you mentioned earlier, this idea that, I mean, it's all too believable of Reagan. But the way in which the Vargas Llosa, who's Peruvian, but right, apparently right, so comfortably ranging across the whole continent. Slightly Reaganite view. That is a slightly Reaganite view. <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, uh, you're right about all the individual particularities. And he's very good on some of the particularities of the countries that I know well. And I would assume that the countries that I know less well, he's really done his research. Um, I remember I was in Guatemala when Fox News in the United States referred to the three Central American countries, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, as the three Mexican countries. And everyone in, in Guatemala was sort of up in arms thinking like, wait, but we're sovereign nations. So on the one hand, every Latin American, of course, recognizes national sovereignty because it sticks in their craw when no one else recognizes it. On the other hand, Vargas Llosa clearly, as part of his research process, goes out of his way to you know get to know intellectuals, writers in the various countries that he's writing about. He thanks people who have helped him do research in Guatemala quite fulsomely in the acknowledgments of the novel. So it's not as if he does what uh, journalists would refer to as parachute journalism, where he just comes in for a couple of days and then heads out. He's He's been doing research in the library of the Francisco Marroquin, which is one of the right wing, by the way, universities in Guatemala. He appeared on stage. The interesting thing is it's not just that he's good on the details of all of these particular countries. He's also politically engaged in the national realities. So when he gave the book presentation in Guatemala City, he appeared on stage with Jacobo Arbenz's son. He appeared on stage with the son of the overthrown pre the president that was overthrown by the CIA. So he's clearly trying to make a kind of political point as well as presenting a novel. And he's very, you know, he knows that his novels will be received that way, but he's also very con conscious of that. And so that's an interesting choice. Uh, and a slight risk of doing, well, 
exactly that myself and I'm talking about other countries but the way that the the consequences of the of the coup in 1954 that Guatemala is still living with them and that there was the civil war and the that followed and the and the US interference and continuing interference in, in Latin America which continued long after the, the end of the cold war and it, you know in, in recent years that the the ousting of Manuel Zelaya in Honduras in 2014 or of Evo Morales in Bolivia in 2019 when you're reading the novel about the coup in 1954, does it have echoes with those those events? Absolutely. Just to be clear about what's apples and apples and what's apples and oranges, um, the U.S. supports two flavors of coups in Latin America or globally, right? Still, there are two flavors. One flavor is we do it the do-it-yourself coup, where the CIA pays for it, hires people, does central casting for the tin pot dictator who's going to come later. And that's the 1954 coup in Guatemala. The second flavor of coup is to give the green light. The CIA does not support the coup directly. They don't give the money. They don't send the mercenaries. But they tell the plotters, we will support you if you go through with this. And because the United States, and that's the classic one is Brazil. I mean, there, there are many cases of this, right? Um, the CIA in Chile in 1973, it's a little bit of a mix of the two categories now that I've set up the two categories because they were funding right-wing student groups, but the coup itself directly, they gave the green light. It's not as if, uh, in, as in Guatemala, they were sending the bombers overhead. Those, those, so it, it is important to kind of separate them out because I don't want to say everything this, this is the CIA at all times in, in the same way. And so recently, the flavor that, that the CIA seems to have been preferring is we'll give the green light. And then as soon as the coup is complete, we will um, recognize the new government without creating any problems internationally, either at the UN or at the Organization of American States. And so that's what happened in Honduras, for example. And um, Hondurans were furious that this did not come up more frequently during Hillary Clinton's um, presidential candidacy, because she was the Secretary of State at the time who gave a rubber stamp to the outcome of the coup. And so what the role of the CIA was at that time, what the role of the embassy was, you know, we'll have to wait until those documents are declassified. But it's a fact that the U.S. turned a completely blind eye to the coup in Honduras with the result that we have ended up with a narco state in Honduras, who is still considered a close ally of the United States. And so as we speak today on Monday, November 29th, there has just been a election result in Honduras with some promising uh, possibilities for an opposition candidate. But the the current president of Honduras, Juan Orlando Hernandez, is a drug trafficker and has been indicted. And his brother was indicted in Brooklyn court. His name has been mentioned over and over again. Of course, the lawyers would want me to say he denies all allegations, blah, 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 which of course is true. But there's there's no question that Honduras is a narco state. Whichever way you look at it, it, it walks like a duck, smells like a duck, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's a narco state. So what the U.S. is willing to accept as an outcome of their so-called successful coups, continues into the present. And also that there are huge numbers of people fleeing Honduras, in particular among other states, but I mean, vast numbers of the, of the people who were stopped at the US-Mexico border are fleeing Honduras. And that creates political problems to the United States. So it's not, I mean, it's kind of unclear how this is, how it's in the US interest. Why, what is it, why, how is it in the US interest to support J-O-H. There's an activist slogan that was coined in the UK, actually, by members of the Windrush generation saying, we are here because you were there. Meaning, if it weren't for the colonial and sort of post-colonial meddling, we wouldn't be 
migrating to your country in ways that perhaps make you uncomfortable. Um, the same could be said of Central America. So the really historic change in the so-called um, immigration crisis at the U.S. border is that up until kind of 2000, the vast majority of people coming to the U.S. were Mexican. Post-2000, and certainly in the last 10 years, the vast, vast, vast majority of people trying to migrate to the United States are from Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Think about the U.S. intervention in each of those countries, in Guatemala and El Salvador, backing right way, first of all, the coup in, in Guatemala in 1954, destabilizing the entire country, and then during the civil wars in El Salvador and Guatemala, backing brutal right-wing dictatorships that massacred vast swathes of people, when they fled to the United States, no one's asylum claims were recognized because Reagan was behind all of it, right? And then Honduras has a different story. They were the... Um, they were the big allies of the U.S. U.S. air bases were set up in Honduras during the civil wars of the 80s. But in more recent times, we have been supporting people like Juan Orlando Hernandez. So it shouldn't be any surprise to anyone in the United States that huge numbers of Hondurans are showing up at our doorstep. And there are a lot of push factors, right? There's gang violence, which under conditions that the U.S. has also helped to create because of drug demand in the United States. There's climate change. There's gender violence. There's all kinds of stuff pushing people out of these countries. But the political um, instability, you really do have to trace back to the United States if you have like half a brain and one eye cocked for the history books. Rachel Nolan, thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much um, for allowing me to ride my preferred hobby horse, Guatemala, with you here today. You can read Rachel Nolan's piece in the current issue of the LRB along with Perry Anderson on Stella Gervas's Conquering Peace, Colin Burrow on Isabel Williams's new translation of Catullus, and a diary by Bernadette Wren. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes. The music is by Kieran Brunt.